couple of weeks ago, I started with four common proofs of the existence of God. Today, I want to start with four questions every person has to answer, and every person does answer, whether, whether they know it or not. Four questions. You might have heard these before. They're not original to me. These questions boil, boil everything down about how you view the world. Question one. Why is there something rather than nothing? If all this is just an accident, then that's going to influence your purpose in life. That's going to influence even how you view people. Why is there something rather than nothing? Question two, what has gone wrong? You look out into the world, clearly things are not the way they are supposed to be. So what's the nature of the problem? Question three, is there any hope? Can things get better or will they just stay the same? Question four, where is history headed? Will we go on and on kind of aimlessly or is there a final resolution to which we're headed? See, these four big questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? What has gone wrong? Is there any hope? And where is history headed? Now, our passage of the Bible today, I think, touches on nearly every one of these questions but it especially touches on question two and three. What has gone wrong? Is there any hope? Now, I wonder if you could see that your answer to that that first part of that question, what has gone wrong, will shape your answer to the second part of that question. Where do you find hope? It reminds me of a quote I came across recently. This quote's appropriate for this passage today. It's especially appropriate for Christmas. It goes like this. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent a politician. If God had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so he sent us a savior. In John 8, 12 to 30, Jesus speaks to what has gone wrong. We walk in darkness and if left to ourselves, we will die and die in our sin. But Jesus also speaks to where we find hope. And it's simple, we find hope in him. So follow along as I read John 8, 12 to 30. After I read, I'll say, this is God's word. If you agree, would you say, thanks be to God. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? 
Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to him, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point. You don't have to walk in darkness. You don't have to die in your sin. Follow Jesus, the Son of God, sent by the Father to swallow up sin and death by taking them upon himself. Now, if you've been around the last few weeks as we went through John 5 through John 8, much of what we read today will likely sound familiar. Many of the same themes and objections and even conversations happened here as they've happened before. Now, this shows us just how stubborn the people around Jesus were, but it also shows us how patient Jesus is. And it also reminds us to pay close attention You see, if the Holy Spirit leads a biblical author to repeat something over and over again, well, it must be important. (laughs) Jesus has made big claims about who he is, and those claims are repeated over and over again throughout the Gospel of John. And as Jesus repeats these claims, these claims become non-ignorable It gets to the point where we must do something about it. His claims are too big that either we must reject him fully or accept him completely. And we see those claims again in our passage. So here's the roadmap for our time, just so that you know where we're going. Like previous sections, this section of John has two paragraphs that are set up very similarly. Both paragraphs have a truth about Jesus, a truth about people, a call to respond, and objections that lead to why Jesus is trustworthy. You'll find that roadmap on the back of your bulletin. And if you're looking at the back of your bulletin, you gotta insert one little thing, all right? If we see a truth about Jesus, a truth about people, insert a call to respond, and objections. These are objections that lead to why Jesus is trustworthy. All right, that's where we're going. But before we start the car, get in and drive. A little bit of housekeeping. Last week, we covered John 7, 37 to 52. This week, we're covering John 8, 
12 to 30. Hold on a second. What about John 7, 53 to John 8, verse 11? If you're a fan of the movie Elf, it's Christmas time. Maybe you've seen it 10 times watching TV. Uh, if you're a fan of the movie Elf, you might remember that Buddy the Elf's dad, Walter Hobbs, worked for a children's book publisher. Now, Walter's boss chastised him for signing off to print a book that had pages of the story missing. And the result was that the story didn't make any sense. And yet still, Walter was signed off on the book anyway. Do we risk the same mistake that Walter made? Do we compromise the integrity of the story if we don't cover John 7, 53 through John 8, verse 11? No, I don't think we compromise the integrity of the story. There are good reasons, I think, to conclude that John 7, 53 through John 8, verse 11 are not part of John's gospel, but were added to it later. Now, I want to give you three reasons for this, and I'm helped by scholars who have studied John more deeply than I have. Reason one, why I think John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is not part of John's gospel. Reason one is manuscript evidence. Manuscript is just another way to refer to copies of the biblical text that are ancient and have been preserved. So if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you'll see a big note that says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. That early part matters because if scribes who copied down the biblical text were to add something, you would see it pop up later, not early. So this section in question for us doesn't appear widely in manuscripts until the medieval times. And more than that this would raise any doubts about the Bible, this should actually raise our confidence in the Bible. It tells us that we have enough manuscript evidence to know what's originally part of the biblical text and what's not. Reason two, just covering these kind of quickly, why 753 through 811 I don't think are originally part of John's gospel. It's the unique language of the section. The unique language. There are 14 words in this section that don't occur anywhere else in John. If you look at chapter eight, verse three, it's the only instance of the word scribes, where there's one example. That's a word that's more used by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So there's the unique, the unique language in this section here, but there's one more reason. And this might be the easiest one for us to see. It's that it interrupts the flow of the book. This section interrupts the flow of the book. Now, we might not have a Bible that has a footnote for us about the manuscripts, we might not pick up on the unique language, but all of us left off in chapter seven with Jesus speaking in the temple during the Feast of Booths. And there Jesus made a big claim about himself that has some background with the feasts and the people respond. Here in John 8, 12 to 30, Jesus is still in that same place. He's still in the temple and it's still around the same time, the Feast of Booths. Even look how 8.12 starts off. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them. It's like it's picking up where 7.52 left off. Now, all of this isn't to say that 7.53 through 8.11 teaches anything wrong. It very well could have happened. This story is very similar to Jesus healing the paralyzed man, lowered through the roof. It's similar to the woman who anointed Jesus' feet at great cost to herself. But if we are going through what the Spirit inspired to be part of John's gospel, well, then we're not going to cover this section because, well, I don't think it's part of John's gospel. So there's a little explanation. If you want to know more, talk more about it, come see me afterwards. Um, so let's jump into 12 through 20. 
Here we see Jesus is the light for our darkness. Just this first paragraph, verses 12 through 20. Again, just to give you a roadmap for the paragraph. There's a truth about Jesus. There's a truth about us. There's a call to respond. And there are objections that eventually show that Jesus is trustworthy. You and I can trust him. So starting off, there's this truth about Jesus. It's very clear to see. He is the light of the world. This is the second of seven I am statements from Jesus in John's gospel. We saw the first I am statement back in chapter 6, verse 35, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, just on face value, starting off in chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, that's an inspiring statement, isn't it? You would almost picture Jesus leading the choir to sing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. But we're going to appreciate Jesus' statement even more if we understand the context into which Jesus is speaking. Again, it's the Feast of Booths. Fresh in the people's memories, the, the people who are hearing Jesus say this are the ceremonies they just celebrated during the Feast of Booths. Last week, we talked about the water pouring ceremony that was part of the feast. The water symbolized how God sustained his people in the wilderness after the exodus. The water also symbolized how God sustained his people year in and year out, sending rain to give them crops. But there was also a light ceremony during the Feast of Booths. It would happen every night of the seven days. Each night they would burn torches so that they could sing praise and celebrate throughout the night. Now, why would they have this emphasis on light during the Feast of Booths? Again, you have to think back to what Israel went through during their time in the wilderness. Not only did God provide for his people, he also led his people. And how did God lead his people? If you know the story, he led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire or light by night. So hence the emphasis on light during this feast. So in the wilderness, after they just got out of Egypt, the Israelites were in a place where they had never been before. They had no idea how to navigate this place, but they did have a desired destination, the promised land. They just had no knowledge or ability to get there. So here, this is the backdrop when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It's like he's saying, I am the light who leads to the promised land of heaven. And notice how Jesus describes himself, this truth about Jesus. I am the light of the world. Jesus doesn't say that I am a light for Israel. It's not what Jesus says. He says, I am the light of the world. Not one of many, the one and only. Now, if that's true, then there are many false lights in the world. If that's true, then people call light what really isn't light all the time. I see it around Christmas time. Just listen on the radio to our songs, watch it on TV and our movies. People assume that the light is in themselves. They rewrite the nativity story. Right, where does the star hang in the nativity story? Over the manger, right? People sort of rewrite that to see, to write that the star hangs over their own hearts and their own, and their own selves. People call what's light what really isn't light. There are false lights everywhere. Jesus is the light of the world. 
And not only do people assume that the light is in themselves, people assume that there are multiple equally viable lights that lead to God. That there are many lights, not just one light. It reminds me of a story I heard from one pastor. He talked about his experience of of talking with two men outside of a temple in a different country. These men had different religions. And they were talking about how all three of their religions were fundamentally the same, just maybe different on the surface. Well, after the pastor listened for a while, eventually he spoke up and he, he said, it's almost like you guys picture God or whoever you want to call him on top of a mountain. And we're all at the bottom. And I may take this path up. You may take that path up. But in the end, we'll all be in the same place. And they said, yeah, exactly. That's exactly how it works. You understand. You get it. Well, the pastor said, what if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain didn't wait for us to find our way to him, but that he actually came down to us? He said, wow, that would be amazing. He said, this is the difference between Christianity and everything else. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, I am the light of the world. And if this is true about Jesus, then that means there's something true about us. If Jesus is the light of the world, then something true about us, it must mean that we walk in darkness. That we are like the Israelites in the wilderness. That we have no knowledge or ability or even desire to get up to that mountain or to the promised land of heaven. But God has come down through Jesus. Jesus is the light that appeared in our darkness and that light leads to the promised land. So with this truth about Jesus and the truth about us established, that he is light, but we walk in the dark, Jesus now calls for a response. What does he say? Look at verse 12. He says, whoever follows me, Now, if you jump ahead to verse 24, the response he calls for there is to believe in him. Friends, these are synonymous. To believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus. To believe in Jesus is more than just a mental agreement with Jesus. It is a whole life, whole heart pursuit of Jesus. Those who believe and follow Jesus, he says, have the light that leads to life. Even right now, followers of Jesus have begun to enjoy the life that Jesus is leading us to because we know the life giver. Now, right here would have been a great time to let Jesus elaborate. It would have been a great time for the people to celebrate. But instead, the people pontificate. They dust off the same old objections that they've used before. They charge Jesus with not being credible. They rehash a conversation that Jesus had with other people way back in John chapter 5. Back in John chapter 5, Jesus defends against the charge that he lacks credibility to make the claims that he does. Jesus defends against that charge like any good defense attorney. He calls witnesses to the stand. And in John chapter 5, there are, he calls other people who testify to the truth about who he is. He calls John the Baptist. He calls God the Father. He even calls the Word of God itself. All these testify to the truth of who Jesus is. Now, I just want to give you a flyover of verses 14 to 20 because a lot of the content is, has been repeated in John. This time around... Jesus begins his defense with offense. So fly over of verses 14 to 20. 
Jesus starts off by saying that their standards to evaluate people are misguided. Verse 14, they don't have all the facts and all the information they need to make a right conclusion. They don't know his origin. They don't know his destination. These are topics that have come up in John again and again. Verse 15, Jesus tells them that their standards are self-serving, not God-serving. And he isn't like that. That's what he means when he says, I judge no one. Of course, Jesus judges. He's just talked about judging in chapter five. He'll talk about judging again later in chapter eight. What Jesus means is that he doesn't judge and evaluate people like they do. Jesus' standards are not like their standards. His standards are God's standards, not self-serving ones. Well, verses 16 to 18, besides all this, Jesus says that he is not the only one who witnesses to the truth that he is the light of the world. The Father witnesses to this truth. And there are several examples that come to mind of the Father testifying about the truth about his Son. One of those is his baptism. What did the Father say when Jesus was baptized? His voice was heard. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And in verse 19, people wonder, who is your Father, Jesus? And Jesus presses further into his offense. He makes the same point to them as he's made before. They don't recognize the father's testimony because they don't really know the father. If they really knew God the father, they would recognize the family resemblance in God the son. So all this back and forth, all these objections and answers, all of this serves to show us that Jesus is credible. We can trust him. We can trust his claim to be the light of the world. Jesus will back up this claim and God the Father himself will verify this claim again when he rises his son from the dead. Even this exchange between Jesus and these people show us that you can trust Jesus. You can trust Jesus because he's not like you. He is like you, but he's not like you. He's not compromised like we are. His standards and motives don't have one drop of impurity or one drop of underhandedness. Hebrews 4 says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus is like us, but he is unlike us, and we can trust him. So let me sum up John 12, John 8, verses 12 to 20. This whole paragraph. Let me just sum it up in a couple sentences, all right? To us who walk in darkness with no knowledge or ability to get to the promised land, Jesus is the light that has come down and you can trust him. Now to wrap up this paragraph, I wanna apply it in three ways. Three applications of John 8, 12 to 20, okay? Doubt your doubts, dare to hope, Declare his excellencies. Doubt your doubts. If you doubt the truth about Jesus that we talked about here, if you doubt that Jesus is the light of the world, it could be because you doubt the truth about yourself. It goes back to the second and third questions we talked about. What has gone wrong? Where is hope? If you think that nothing really has gone wrong, well, then you don't really need hope, do you? If you don't feel the darkness within you and around you, you won't sense your need for the light above you. So what do you do? How do you explain the darkness of sin to someone who doesn't believe in sin, who doesn't feel the darkness? Uh, He's gone home with the Lord. R.C. Sproul was asked the same question. 
How do you explain sin to someone who doesn't believe in it? He gave a three-word answer. Steal his wallet. (laughs) The darkness of sin should be obvious. But our own darkness is not obvious to us, is it? We see darkness out there. But we excuse and justify and rationalize that same darkness that lives right in here. The same seeds of darkness that you see out there are present in your heart right in here. So you see theft in the world. You know what Jesus says? You don't realize that the same seeds of theft reside in the jealousy that's in your heart. You see adultery and cheating in the world. You don't realize that the seeds of adultery reside in the lust and covetousness that's in your heart. You see murder in the world. You don't realize that the same seeds of murder reside in the anger and bitterness of your heart. Friend, if you doubt that there is darkness in you and darkness around you, you will doubt that Jesus is the light that you need. I encourage you to doubt that doubt. You very well could be missing something. And I would have you take this warning very seriously. First John 1 verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Dare to hope. Application 2, John 8, 12 to 20. Dare to hope. You know, my guess is that most of us deeply and keenly feel the darkness that is in us and around us. Because maybe you have made a mess of your life. Or maybe someone else has made a mess of your life. Maybe you feel a coldness, a a lifelessness, a numbness in your soul. You just can't shake. Maybe you've kept an addiction. Maybe you've kept an affair. Maybe you've kept an abuse hidden in the dark. Dare to hope, my friends. You don't have to walk in the dark. What does Jesus say? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. If you follow Jesus and right now there's darkness, well, you're just gonna have to keep going (laughs) because that's not where he's going to lead you. Third application Declare his excellencies. My fellow Christ follower, would it surprise you if I told you that the light of the world has now taken residence within you? Would it surprise you that now Jesus' followers are called the light of the world? Because that's what we are called in Matthew 5, verse 14. Jesus tells us, you are the light of the world. The light of Christ shines through us when we do good as Christ did good. And the light of Christ shines through us as we declare his excellencies. Maybe you know this verse. This is a precious verse to me. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you 
out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let me tell you something, friends. There are people around you who walk in the same darkness that you walked in. And those people will probably never come to church. Those people will probably never watch a Christian movie. But those people know a Christian person. Will you declare the excellencies of the light of the world, of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Let's go to the next paragraph. We'll cover it a little bit more quickly. Verses 21 to 30. It's set up nearly the same way. Give you the roadmap. There's a truth about Jesus. There's a truth about us. There's a call to respond. And there are objections that eventually show that Jesus is trustworthy. So this initial truth about Jesus, we can see in different parts, right at the beginning. Verse 21, truth about Jesus, he is going away. They misunderstand what he's saying. He tells more truth about himself. Verse 23, Jesus is from above. He is not of this world. Then in verse 24, Jesus says something else, something else that's true about him. He says, I am he. This is pretty stunning because this is the name God, Yahweh, calls himself. It's a unique title because there's, there's no completion to it. In fact, there's actually not the word he on the end in the original language. It's just I am. This is the name connected with God revealing to Moses at the burning bush. You remember that what was unique about that moment in Exodus 3, the burning bush, it was unique because there was a fire in the bush and yet the fire didn't depend on the bush. I can hear Scottish pastor Sinclair Ferguson saying now, he says he calls it a most pure fire, a fire that was not a compound of other energy sources, but had its energy source in itself. This is what, it's mean, what it means to be I am. And in the original language, what Jesus says here in verse 24 is the same as what he'll say in verse 58 in John, in John chapter eight. The first time they hear him say this, it doesn't just seem to land on them. It doesn't seem to land on them that Jesus claims equality with God, but Jesus has made this claim before and they've even recognized it before. Way back in John John 5, verse 18, it says that the Jews sought to kill Jesus not because he was breaking the Sabbath law, but he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God. That's why Jesus tells them in John 8, verse 26, he says, I'm not saying anything new to you. And yet still throughout this section, just as Jesus uses the same title uh, that God the Father uses for himself, he describes himself as being equal with God and yet distinct from God the Father. So this is the truth about Jesus. He is going away. He is from above. He is not of this world and he is the I am. Well, the truth about us is that you and I are very unlike Jesus. Here, he levels with people. Verses 21 to 30. He says, I'm going away, but you can't come to the same place where I'm going. I'm going away, but you will die and die in your sin. I am from above, you are from below. I am not of this world, you are of this world. So with this truth about Jesus and this truth about us established, he calls for a response. What's the response he calls for? Verse 24, what does he say? Unless you believe, believe. Unless you believe that I am he, really, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I'm not sure if Jesus could level with us more directly than this. 
Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This verse teaches us a few things, doesn't it? Verse 24 teaches us that, that sin is connected to death. Death is not a natural outcome of life. Death is a moral consequence of sin. This verse, verse 24, teaches us that each of us are either in one or two states. We, either, we are either in our sin or we are in Christ. Jesus warns us that we don't want to be in the state of our sin when we die. Verse 24 teaches us that the ultimate unforgivable sin is to reject Jesus. And I think that's why he starts off with the singular sin in verse 21 and then to the plural in verse 24. All of our other sins flow out of the singular sin of unbelief because to reject Jesus is to reject the cure. To reject Jesus is to block the door. To reject Jesus is to throw away the key. If you don't believe in Jesus, you will remain in the state of being in your sin even when you die. Think of this state of being in sin like location, like a place. And think of death as a brewing storm. If you are in the place of your sin, you have no shelter or cover above you as this brewing storm is coming. But if you are in the state, the location, the place of in Christ, it's like you come inside and take shelter. That the storm that's brewing, that deserves to fall upon you, when you believe in Christ and you come inside, will fall upon him instead. These are the two states, my friends. Now, right here would have been a great time to let Jesus elaborate. It would have been a great time for even the people to contemplate. But instead, the people castigate. Verse 25 starts off more objections. They ask him, who are you? And the tone of this question appears to be, who are you to claim that we should believe in you? What gives you the right? Jesus says, I'm just saying what I've always said to you. And I'm not saying this on my own. I'm saying this at the direction of my father. And even though they don't get it still, Jesus continues. How will they know that Jesus is who he says he is? They'll know when they lift him up. That's what Jesus says in verse 28. You'll know this when you lift me up. That's the way Jesus refers to the cross. So the same thing happens as the previous paragraph. The objection of Jesus's credibility actually leads to bolster Jesus's reliability. You look at verses 28 to 29, what Jesus is saying. He says, you can trust in me because of what I have done, really what I will do. You can trust in who Jesus is because of what Jesus has done. The cross shows us that Jesus is the savior of sinners. The cross shows us that Jesus is the obedient son of the father. And in verse 30, some people respond to this message in faith, but we're gonna have to see if they stick around after they hear the message. Now, let me just sum up this entire paragraph, just a couple sentences. You don't have to die in your sin because God the Son was sent to die for your sin. Believe in him. That's the message of the paragraph. I'm gonna wrap up our time with four ways to apply John 8, 21 to 30. They all begin with C, four ways. Consider your death. 
Careful of false confidence. Calculate Jesus correctly. Copy Jesus faithfully, quickly. Consider your death. 17th century pastor Richard Baxter faced illnesses nearly his entire life. And this produced for Baxter a mantra for his ministry. He said that he preached as a dying man to dying men. A dying man to dying men. Baxter reflects the perspective of his savior. Jesus sees fit to remind people that life is short and death is near. But death won't be the end. This isn't fear-mongering, it's just reality, that you don't know what tomorrow will bring. That's why the Bible says that today, today is the day of salvation. My friend, if you don't believe in Jesus, you face death standing in your sin, without any cover, without any shelter. Come to Jesus and come inside. And the storm that you deserve will fall on him. Trust in Jesus and follow him today. Second application, careful of false confidence. Careful of false confidence throughout John chapter eight. Look, who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to people who know a lot about God and they're confident that they do know God. But here's the warning, friend, just because you talk about God doesn't mean you know God. The only way to know God is through his son, Jesus Christ. Be careful of claiming to closeness to God when you are distant from Jesus. Number three, calculate Jesus correctly. Calculate Jesus correctly. I'm trying to keep the alliteration going. I met someone once who told me that, uh, that their favorite passage of the Bible was the Sermon on the Mount. I said, amen, brother. That's great. This is Jesus' teaching from Matthew 5 to 7. He said, I memorize the Sermon on the Mount. To him, it's the centerpiece of the Bible. It's all that we need. But I think there might be a potential misunderstanding because Jesus is more than just the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is more than just a teacher. And anyone who honestly reads the Sermon on the Mount knows I haven't kept the instructions of the Sermon on the Mount. They will know that we need more than just a teacher. We need a savior. If we just needed teaching, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die. So friends, you won't know who Jesus is until, what you, until you know what he has done on the cross. Jesus reflects that here in John 8, 28 to 29. Last, copy Jesus faithfully. Jesus points out the truth about us, that we are very unlike him. We are from below, we are of the world. He is from above and not of the world. And yet here is a wonder. Those who believe in Jesus are being made like him. John 1, 12 to 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When you live Galatians 2.20, when you live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself up for you, when that is central to you, when that goes deep down into you, you start to live like Jesus. You start to live different from the world around you and yet loving the world around you. So not only does Jesus answer the second and third big questions we talked about, he also answers the fourth one. Where is history going? Where is it going? Well, listen to how John writes about the future of the Christ follower in 1 John 3, 2. We know 
that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you that you became like us, that you took on flesh and dwelt among us, that you know what it's like to have weakness, that you know what it's like to be rejected and mistreated and slandered, that you can genuinely stand in our place, and yet we praise you also that you are unlike us, that you are without sin, without impure motive. And we pray, God, that by your power, you would make us more like you. You would make us different from the world around us, and yet loving the world around us. Help us to continue to follow you and trust that you are leading us to the light of the promised land of heaven. Keep us going, dear Lord. In your name we pray, amen.